Well, about two years ago, 1819 News came on the scene and everybody wondered, who is this Brian Dawson guy? Where did he come from? And, you know, what's going on? Uh, Created a lot of uh, panic and unrest in Montgomery with coming on the scene with a, a news outlet. Who is this guy? Where did he come from? Well, today I actually have the guy who taught me everything I know about the business coming on, Lee Habib. He's the host of Our American Stories. Uh, He's the creator and co-founder of The Laura Ingram Show, uh, writes for Newsweek, Vice President of Continent Salem, uh, and on and on it goes. Just done incredible work in the media space, messaging and everything else. Uh, Storytelling is uh, is where he's at his best uh, in the way that story affects culture. Um, you definitely need to tune in and hear what he has to say. We have an incredible culture here in the state of Alabama, but our politics and public policy don't reflect the people of Alabama. Media drives culture. Culture is what drives politics and public policy. Welcome, everyone, to 1819 News, the podcast. I'm Brian Dawson, CEO of 1819 News and host of this year podcast, where we are pursuing a free and flourishing Alabama every single week. I know I always talk about how excited I am about the guest that comes in. I'm, I'm sure that's good etiquette to make them feel good and that I'm really excited about them, but I always am. We always have really good guests, but I'm, I'm probably most excited about this one than all of them. Um, you guys have probably heard me talk about him uh, a ton. Anyone who's ever sat in a room and talked about my career history has heard uh, a very long version. Um, and we're bringing in um, Lee Habib. Uh, He is the one that taught me everything I know uh, about Medium, um, who gave me a chance uh, kind of in the big league side of Media, and he is probably most well-known right now for being the CEO of Our American Stories. It's a top 10 show. It's the, I think it came into the, the, the rankings this year at 10, so it is a top 10 nationally syndicated radio show. He's also uh, a Newsweek columnist, and he's also the vice president of content at Salem, where he oversees shows like... Dennis Prager, uh, Hugh Hewitt, uh, Eric Metaxas, and guys like that, who I'm sure you've heard of. And so it's an honor to bring him on because he was the one that ultimately gave me uh, a, a chance to get into to media. And all I was doing at the time when we met was growing radio shows. I had some success uh, growing a news product at USA Radio News. He heard about my success. Uh, he brought me on and, and said, hey, I want you to come work for me and do for me what you did for USA radio news with our American stories. And I said, well, I don't want to grow people's shows for the rest of my life. I really want to get into the business. So, you know, I'll grow your show. You teach me everything you know about the media business. And, and, and that's what we did. And that was the nature of our relationship. And I, I learned a ton. Uh, I grew a ton. Um, and I, you know, am just so blessed uh, to be able to, to, to have sat under that teaching and have him here now uh, in the studio to, to go over some of those things about cultural architecture, storytelling, hearing his story, uh, and all of that. So really excited to to bring him in and have you guys uh, hear from the master. But before we jump into the content, I want to tell you guys, please join the fight. Sign up to become a member today. Support nonprofit news, support independent journalism by becoming a member of 1819 News today. Alabama needs 1819 News. 1819 News needs you. You can go to the website at 1819news.com. Click the button, become a member. Membership start as little as $5 a month. With that, you're going to get really incredible behind-the-scenes content like we'll be recording with Lee today, uh, and you'll also get merch depending on what level you join. So please do that. Again, membership start as little as $5 a month. All right, so we will now go into the content. Um, how was my live read? You're kind of the live read it, master. It was, was it quite good? good. I give you a, an 85. An 85. And I'm right. a tough we, grader. There's yeah, no curve here. We, we got to get into the 90s. So, 
All right. Well, Lee, thank you so much for for taking the drive from Oxford, Mississippi over here to Birmingham to, to sit in the studio with me. I appreciate it, Brian. Yeah. And so there's so many places I want to go, so many things that we could talk about, but I want to just kind of dig in on, you know, what you do professionally. And then I want to hear about your story. And so that was the one thing I've learned listening to hundreds of interviews of you interviewing interesting people um, is how people's stories usually tie into who they are and what they do. Somehow there's always that. Um, hearing about parents, tell us about your parents, tell us where you're born, all those things. Again, these are all things I learned listening to your interviews. And so I'm going to turn the tables on you, but first talk about, um, our American stories, kind of the, the, we'll go real deep into our American stories. Once we're on the other side of your story, what you do at our American stories, what is our American stories? Talk about your work at Salem. Talk about your work, uh, at, at Newsweek. Sure. Uh, our American stories sprung because in the end I had done the debate for a long time, and that's the back and forth. That's that's the left versus the right. That's the progressive notion of America versus what we're looking at now is this sort of populist sort of Trump version of America. And these two sides are competing. Uh, but nobody's trying to reach the people in between. And moreover, I think even many conservatives don't quite remember what the fight's really about. Too many Americans just don't know their own history. And uh, I, I'm the son of a history teacher and a department head in history and then a superintendent of schools. And my dad's, my dad's idea of a good road trip was going from Gettysburg to Vicksburg. And most of the kids in my family, the other three siblings I had, did not think that was fun. I did, A, because I got alone time with my dad. Very important, dads. As many kids as you have, make those alone trips with those kids. Treat them as individuals. My dad was a brilliant dad. And uh, we bonded, but I learned a lot about American history, and it sunk. It, it stuck um, and here I am all these years later thinking, well, I've done the Laura Ingram show. I've worked at Salem with Prager and Metaxas and Bill Bennett, like heroes of mine as vice president of content, working on the shows, working with the production teams, working on sales, a whole nine yards. But there was something missing. We weren't telling the story of America to Americans. And my dad kept telling me that. He said, you know, quiz some of your guys. Ask them what happened with Ben Franklin and his son. Does he know what happened? Do they know what happened to those two men during the Revolutionary War, what the price was, that, what the costs were to families in this division that was separating Americans to fight the British or not to fight the British. This was a big deal then, and no one knew how it was going to end up. So part of this was my dad was saying, what would a show sound like if it was just stories? No opinion, no proselytization. Sometimes it might even make conservatives look bad, right? Sometimes conservatives were against things that we're all now for, a five-day work week. That's yeah. a pretty good thing. Unions, they weren't completely terrible. It's just unions got out of control. Right. But why did unions form? And so what? And, and the biggest one, my dad said, is conservatives might not like to know why the Constitution was formed for stronger central government. Separate states printing their own money was not a way to nation build. We needed to pay our soldiers. We couldn't. So it's complicated. Now, then we can draw our camps and fight. But do we know why we're fighting? Do yeah. we know our history? Do we know our own story? And so that's how that started. And uh, essentially, I had some very good uh, financial backers. Uh, the show is a nonprofit show. And every day, five nights a week, we tell the story of America to Americans. And it's not just George Washington. It's Booker T. Washington, right? It's Du Bois and the battle those two guys had for the heart and soul of African Americans. And we don't tie it up and tell people what to think. We just tell them the story. We also tell sports history. We tell business history. Where does money come from? Who's Henry Ford? Who's John Rockefeller? Who's Bernie Marcus? He founded Home Depot 
and change the world for small contractors so they could buy their lumber at the same rates that Pulte Homes and all the other big competitors could. So we tell the story of entrepreneurs, and our favorite stories are our listeners' stories. Yeah. And so we started the show in 2016 with Brian's help. The show just grew. It grew slowly at first because people said, what is this? There's no opinion. There's nobody screaming and yelling. There's no guests. Our guests actually talk directly to uh, the audience through the miracle of sound editing, sound design, and tape delays. Yep. Nothing is live. So we're doing sort of what NPR does, except we think a little differently than NPR. Yeah. So we have a slightly different worldview, and that comes across too. We value different things. It doesn't mean NPR is bad people. I, I, I'm one of these people who doesn't think liberals and progressives are bad people. I just think they don't have good thoughts about some things. And some other things, I think they may have some good thoughts. They just don't have the right solutions. They may be talking about the right problems, though, and sometimes we don't talk about those problems. Working class wages. What are we going to do with people who aren't skilled and don't have great skills as the modern economy changes? I, I think legitimately progressives, guys like Bernie Sanders, ask hard questions about our health care system. And too often we don't say, how do we keep prices down and competitive for working class families? Yeah. So I love the debate. I think it's important to have a robust Democrat Party, a robust Republican Party, and fighting. And so this show, there's no Republican, there's no Democrat. You'll get the story of the Gettysburg Address in one part of the show, and then you'll get the story of the battle between the Philadelphia Fanatic and the San Diego Chicken on who was the first original mascot. Yeah. And so that's Americana to me, and Americana to my team, and the show has had tremendous success. We got picked up by iHeartMedia in 2021. Um, it's ranked 11. We would love to be number 10. We're, we're working on number 10. We just got the ranking. We're ranked the 11th biggest syndicated show in the country. And we're working hard on the podcast, and it's now up to 10 million annual downloads from 300,000 two years ago. So it turns out there's an appetite for, for, for Americans to just hear a show about the country they love, but they haven't heard much about the country they love. They don't get it in history classes anymore. They certainly don't know the story of how American music happened. If it weren't for intellectual property, if it weren't for property rights, why would songwriters write? Why would singers record songs? Why would there be a music business? So when we tell music stories, my favorite was the story of the great Duke Ellington. And it's a story of 20th century race relations. Duke Ellington was not allowed to walk into the front door of the Cotton Club in Harlem because he was black. That's bad. Yeah. We should be universally against that and regularly remind Americans that there was a day not too long ago where Duke Ellington couldn't play in the club he helped build and that blacks in Harlem couldn't go in, but they could be waiters and they had to come in the back door. And, and so these are, these are rich, it's a rich history. Duke Ellington overcame that. It was painful for him. It was awful. But look at the catalog he left behind. And he worked yeah. with all kinds of white musicians and black musicians. And he advanced race relations through music, yeah. through the arts. We know this with, with blues and with, with, with all kinds of other art, music particularly. We tell a lot of music stories. So that's been the joy of my life is picking up where my dad left off saying, people need to know where they're from. And you need to have some degree of love for your country, but not a fake love. It's like the marriage that says that, that it never had problems. Yeah. Nobody believes in that marriage if yeah. you say it never had problems. But if you say, we almost divorced when you were five, we came close to not talking to each other for a month when you were nine, but it strengthened and we stuck in there and it strengthened our marriage. And here's where we are today. That's the married 
couple that is worthy of giving advice about how love survives pain, suffering, and difficulty. And this country has survived difficulties and bad choices and bad manners. Um, how, how the Italians, I'm half Italian, got treated when they came here was not pleasant. How the Irish got treated here, the Catholics by the Protestants, not pleasant. But that's human nature, right? People, well, they discriminate against each other. They do it in Africa. They do it in Asia. The Japanese didn't like the Chinese. The Chinese didn't like the Japanese. But we somehow in America triumph over these divisions. And so our, our show is really what I would call a rugged, beautiful show. Not just a beautiful show. But I don't think anything is ever really beautiful until I hear about its brokenness. Correct. Yeah. No, I think that's it. And, you know, for whatever reason, I've had a knack at helping people grow syndicated content. And, you know, I had had some success at USA Radio Networks. I was approached by other people and it was all the same thing. It was another angry conservative talking to other angry conservatives about how angry and conservative they were. Right. And it was. Um, you know, one more guy that sounded just like the other guy, but he was going to be a little bit different and be a little bit angrier and yell a little bit more and maybe talk about meatballs or something in his opening monologue. And that's what made him different. And when you came to me and I listened to the show, it was radically different. And that's what interested me. I didn't want to go tell a guy that he should take a three hour show and replace it with another three hour show. That was basically the same show with a different name. Um, I wanted to go pitch someone and say, no, this is radically different. This is, this is revolutionary. And again, you have that knack. I mean, you had the, and we'll get into in your life story, but you know, realizing that Laura Ingram is a, uh, a world-class talent when no one wanted, you know, no one, no one wanted to listen to a woman talk about politics. Well, you, 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 you beg to differ, right? And now she's on Fox every night. And so, um, it's you have that gift for seeing the the thing that's missing and then filling it. And well, so interesting with Laura, I went to law school with her and, you know, she ends up clerking for Clarence Thomas. So this is not ordinary. Right. Yeah. And, and UVA was a good school and she was at the top of her class, was a great athlete, overcame all kinds of difficulties. Her dad drank a little too much. Her mom was working her butt off to help provide for the family. And Laura had to just sort of work her way and struggle through everything. And just a beautiful, brilliant person. And when I teamed up with her to try and do a national radio show, all we faced was rampant sexism. Men routinely saying to Laura, nobody wants to listen to a woman tell them about politics. Why doesn't she do a love show like Dr. Laura? I mean, if she does that show, we're interested. We heard this over and over and over again. But what I love about Laura is she's not a whiner. She's not a victim. She's like, look, they're wrong. We're right. And by the way, when you're trying to do anything new, there'd been no man before who'd ever cracked the top 50 Woman who'd ever cracked the top 50 in national political talk radio. It was yeah. all men. When Women who cracked the top 20 were Dr. Laura or Delilah. They were love shows. Yeah. Women are the love experts. Men are the politics experts. Well, try selling that one to your wife. Good luck, yeah. guys. You know, you're going to get hit over the head by a, a pot. Yeah. Right? Women have a right to vote. They won it. They earned it. Some men think this was the end of the country. Most who have any sense know that this was the beginning of full participation in our country yeah. for electoral politics. And, and Laura, it took us a while. But pretty soon, the program directors especially were saying, well, we only have men listening. And we said, well, you know, if you keep Laura on long enough, women will listen too. Laura's audience was almost 50% women, but the traditional talk radio host was more like 20%. By the way, guess who makes the purchasing decisions in most houses? Yep. So the next thing you know, people were coming to us with their advertising products for women. And Laura was also hitting issues that do hit women a little bit harder than men. 
In the same way that Oprah's show was about stay-at-home moms and giving the validation, and this is hard to believe, folks, but there was a day when Oprah actually focused on stay-at-home moms, Christian values. I think pretty much everybody thought she was a, a, a conservative and a Christian. Yeah. And, and that audience was filled with married women who were stay-at-home moms. Who else is watching television at 3 o'clock? And the overwhelming majority of Oprah's audience was in Birmingham. It was in Topeka, Kansas. It wasn't in New York and L.A. Yeah. And so Laura thought, wow, if I can be sort of the Oprah of politics, that is, the first woman to break ground in this space. And then let's make a lot of women guests. Ann Coulter, regular guest. Michelle Malkin, regular guest. There were really smart women who also weren't getting their shot. And yeah. so our goal was to give them a shot, but not the way progressives would with quotas. We wanted yeah. to earn our way in with ratings. Yeah. And we did. And we did. You guys also, um, uh, why can't I think of his name? Mark Levin was another one that you guys kind of brought in too. Is that right? We put on Mark Levin every Monday uh, and to just talk about the law. Mark Levin at the time was the head of the Landmark Legal Foundation. And if you've ever seen a Supreme Court argument, and you should bring the family and try and get a ticket and get in or a little, it's not a ticket. You don't buy tickets to go in. You got to yeah. wait in line and get in. But you can see a Supreme Court uh, argument. And Mark Levin was called the great one, not by like media types. He was just a lawyer. No one has seen a better Supreme Court litigator ever than Mark Levin. So no one knew who he was, but in the show, he became our legal eagle, our legal expert. Yeah. And oh my goodness, we, we, it was just a, a tutorial um, every week about some case and the precedent it set or some other case and the, and the way it needed to be undone because it was bad precedent. You know, the funny thing about progressives is they love precedent when it cuts their way. Yeah. But they hate precedent when it doesn't. And when I always argue with them, they say, oh, that, you know, Roe v. Wade, it, 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 it undid precedent. I said, well, then using your logic, we should have stuck with Plessy v. Ferguson. I mean, Brown v. Board overturned Plessy. We should have just said separate but equal is fine forever. So do you, you either believe that sometimes precedent is worthy of being overturned or you don't, yeah. but you don't get to pick and choose. So Laura, really, the focus of the show really was about law a lot. A lot about the power of unelected judges to do things they were not elected to do, which is essentially pass laws or yeah. create new rights. And it was the first time that anyone had really dug in to spend hours a week on the importance of the federal judiciary and also the executive branch and how much power the executive branches of our, of, of our country had accrued over time because the legislature didn't want to make hard calls the congressman, sound familiar? So they punted it to the uh, executive branch, to the EPA. And pretty soon, these executive branch agencies were having taxing power, powers beyond belief, almost like a monarchy. And yet they weren't accountable. They weren't elected. And no one knew who they were. And suddenly all these things were happening. So for us, Laura and I, the goal and the dream always was to get strict constructionists and originalists on the court. This was the dream. And the other dream was to one day have Chevron, this very famous case about the federal courts and the judiciary and the executive branch, all of it being rearranged. Chevron basically gave great deference to the administrative agencies. It said, it's okay if Congress punts it. And, and we're always like, but that's unconstitutional. Congress can't give taxing power to anybody else. They don't have the right to surrender that power because yeah. we then lose our vote. And so I think when that case gets revisited, which I think will happen soon, it will be a major victory for people who believe power should reside in the states. And if you like the way Gavin Newsom is running the state and the California state legislature, well, that's your prerogative. 
That's the power of the vote. If you like what the governor here is doing in Alabama, vote her in. If you don't, vote her out. If you like abortion, well, and then vote for it. And if you don't, vote for it. And so we just believed the power to the people is what mattered yeah. and that we the people mattered. And we organized an entire show about that and confounded a lot of our liberal friends who didn't understand. We didn't want to impose a single agenda from the Supreme Court. In fact, what we've learned from Roe and Kansas surprised everybody, is that it's going to be a really interesting debate state by state on where abortion ends. And I think you're going to probably see something like Europe. You'll probably have an average of like 8 to 12 weeks, which is a triumph in the end for pro-lifers. The pro-lifers aren't getting everything, but they're getting a lot. And that's what the electoral process is about. Yeah. That's what democracy is about. It's about wins. It's not about anything else. And sooner yeah. or later, you've got to take your victories and then go the next election cycle and take another victory. And we're going to win some if you're pro-life, and we're going to lose some. And that's the joy. Birmingham can be Birmingham. Berkeley can be Berkeley. And people can vote with their feet. Yeah, that's good. So um, let's go. I want to hear your story. I know a little bit about it, but tell us where you were born. Tell us about your parents. Tell us about what that was like growing up uh, in New Jersey uh, and and how that shaped and molded you into, you know, you kind of already touched a little bit on it about your your father and his passion for history, but I still want to hear kind of connect those, and then we'll go a little bit more into storytelling. Well, you know, I think the biggest thing is that I knew my grandparents, and I was lucky enough to want to know them. And some of my siblings didn't care. They just thought they were old. But for some reason, I had an affinity towards them. And I think the affinity was that I thought they were adventurers. I mean, my Lebanese grandfather left Lebanon, not speaking a word of English. And sometimes I was afraid to go out at night. And this guy crossed an ocean because he wanted to improve the life of his family. Lebanon, there was real great disruption politically. And Lebanon now is gone. Hezbollah has literally taken over. One of the great countries of the Middle East is now rubble. And uh, he sort of saw that coming. He predicted that there'd be a war between the good Muslims and the crazy Muslims. And that there weren't many crazy Muslims, crazy Muslims, but enough. And look, the Christianity went through its own reformation, right? It did. Yeah. These are struggles. And Islam is going through its reformation. There are billions of good Muslims. They may not believe what we believe, but they it, wish no ill will on us. And that's what I love about America. This, this freedom of religious conscience extends to Muslims. It, expen it extends to atheists and to agnostics. My dad really taught me that, that that's what real tolerance looks like. And so everything in my family was sort of an experiment. I was around books all the time. I was around sports. I was around music. So my parents would take me to plays. They'd take me to the opera. Then they'd take me to see Tony Bennett and then Johnny Cash. And they were really letting me choose what I wanted to do. And though one parent was a believer, a lapsed Catholic, but a Catholic to the grave, my dad was sort of an agnostic. But my goodness, he saw the God-given, he searched for the God-given talents in people more than almost any Christians I've ever met. He always would say, how did God make this person? And my job as an educator is to make sure that his talents align with his future. If he doesn't want to go to college, well, then maybe he should be a master craftsman, or maybe he should be a, a trumpet player in a, in, a, in a symphony. Let's figure out how this kid's hardwired and what makes this kid joyful. And then the, this kid has a chance of having a good life, connecting his God-given talents with his chosen career. And over all of it, let's make sure we teach character here. Let's make sure we teach virtue. 
Let's make sure the kids know what good is and what evil is. So I, I was very fortunate to have a mom and dad who didn't just pour into their kids, but they really let us choose the life we wanted to live. My, 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 my sister is a very successful songwriter. By the age of 16, my dad realized college isn't for her. Heck, I'm not even sure if she needs to graduate high school. She had a hit record when she was 17. She wrote a song for Cool and the Gang. And so why force her into a profession or a career that's so-called safe? My dad guided her, trained her up, put her around good business people, good agents, and she's made a career of it. I have another brother who's a lawyer, another brother who's a businessman, and my connection and passion in life really was American history and bringing the past to the present. Because all of our arguments, and we'll get into this in a little bit, Brian, all the arguments we're having today, we've had before. Identical arguments, and we're going to have them forever. Because our founders wanted us to argue between the Establishment Clause and the and you know and the free and the free exercise clause right yeah. if they really wanted to have peace amongst non-religious and religious people they wouldn't have had an establishment clause and a free exercise clause there's yeah. a dynamic tension there that's good there's a battle set up inside the constitution because they know we're going to fight yeah. The founders just understood they wanted to disperse power. We didn't want to put power in any one place because they knew the fallibility of man, the basic Christian nature of our founders. Not all of them were Christians. Ben Franklin, let's not a Christian, but respected Christians. Thomas Jefferson, not a Christian, a deist, but respected Christians. And these guys all understood the same thing, that without a moral people, without a virtuous people, self-governance is impossible. And so this was always the, and and they were doing the freedom of religion for the biggest and best reason possible. They weren't afraid the church was going to affect the state. They were afraid the state was going to affect the church. So thank goodness we don't have a church of America. Can you imagine what that would be like? So the, 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 the question is, how do we religious people coexist with people who aren't? And how do we tolerate them? But how do they make sure they tolerate us? Yeah. And how can we live together? And by the way, that doesn't mean we're not going to come into conflict from time to time. That's perfectly healthy. Yeah. It's perfectly normal. The founders envisioned it. Heck, they lived through conflict. Yeah. So that, that's the essential thing. My parents also taught me how to stay married. Yeah. I mean, they taught me that, that I would see them have fights and I would just think, oh my goodness, they're going to get divorced. The next morning, like clockwork, my dad's making the eggs for my mom. It was usually his fault like 80% of the time, right? <laughs> and he knew it. And he, and he, and he like, he, and more than saying, I'm sorry, I watched my dad give love offerings the next morning. And I saw this over and over and over again. And I thought, wow, the romantic ideal of marriage in movies seemed unattainable. But, but, but the daily habits and rituals of a good marriage and how to get through the hard times and the fights, they taught me that that was possible and that it was beautiful. And so the biggest thing they taught me how to do was how to love another person yeah. forever. Mm. And what a thing to teach somebody. Yeah, that's good. Now, where to go? So um, I feel like I want to touch a little bit on the, the Salem stuff and then um, your Newsweek stuff. I think that's, that's good. And then I just want to get into storytelling for the rest of it. So um, you're wildly successful with Laura's show. Kind of get to the point where it's functioning. You want to go conquer another mountain. 
Um, you meet Ed Atzinger mm-hmm. and tell us that story about how you came into Salem. Well, I had gotten to know Salem because Laura and I did nine to noon on almost all the big Salem media group stations. Yeah. And Dennis Prager then followed us. And so I got to meet their talent at the time. It was yeah. Dennis Prager and Bill Bennett. For my money, two people I could learn from. Yeah. And Laura's show I had taken to the point where the staff that was running it was supremely competent. And I needed another challenge. And Laura was about to go to Fox, and I didn't want to go to Fox. Um, I wanted to be under the wings of uh, people like Bill Bennett and Dennis Prager. I had a lot more to learn. I wasn't one of these 40-year-olds who thought he had nothing to learn. I was the kind of 40-year-old who knew I had so much more to learn. The more I learned, the more I knew I didn't know nearly what I should have known. Um, And so the hunger just kept being fed by these great men. The standard kept being fed by these men. And so when I kept coming into contact with them, ultimately I got to know the Salem management team, and particularly its founder, Ed Atzinger, co-founder. Stu Epperson recently passed, and it's a great mm-hmm. loss. He was the other co-founder, along with Ed, of Salem Media Group, who've done epic work for the cause of people who are faith and, and conservatives. Yep. And also for Christian contemporary music, a really important part of life. You know, I, I forget if it was Aquinas, but he said, when we, pr- when we sing, we pray twice. Yeah. And I believe this. I mean, it's, it's when you're singing loud and you're connected to the music, it's more than a prayer. It's, look, Bonhoeffer was so moved. Bonhoeffer comes to the United States, and he goes to the Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem. And he's so moved by the singing, by the, by the way they worshiped. And, and even, this is long before the sermons. He goes, boy, we're doing something wrong in Germany. Now, there are different worship styles, and it doesn't mean just because you're screaming yeah. and yelling you're not worshiping. But he, he witnessed something that he knew was missing in his own worship experience. Yeah. And so for me, the music is, is just seminal, too. And uh, all these things combined at Salem have made it the powerhouse that it is, plus all the digital things that it does. I mean, it owns Christianity.com, Crosswalks. It owns GodTube. It owns Red State, Hot Air, Town Hall. So watching Ed navigate conservative world, the, the Christian music world, talk and teach. I mean, we're the ones who put people like Tim Keller on the air. Or my my pastor, I feel like still, because I watch him regularly, is David Jeremiah. And, yeah. and David Jeremiah is still carried by Salem. Yeah. We carry it, we put out the show, and we tend to the relationship that we have with his great church and his great teaching. Yeah. Uh, and so it, it's an honor, and I, I just feel so privileged all my life, I felt like I had the ultimate privilege was with the father privilege. Yeah. Because if you have a good dad, you're, you're, you have privilege. Yeah. And, and then from there, the, the people you come in contact with, if, if they're the right people, and my dad always said, get the right people on your train and, and keep the wrong people off. Yeah. Go and help them. Don't take the long train ride with them unless they're worthy of coming on that train. They'll yeah. determine the outcome of your life. And I, I, I've had the honor and the privilege of coming across amazing people. And I've taken the full ride of life with them. And you're one of them, Brian. Yeah. Um, and, and it's a joy to just add people to the train. Yeah. Amen. Um, before we leave Salem, I want to, uh, this is, this is me uh, probably getting high on my own supply here, but um, tell me about, tell, tell, so as I am entering in this space and we're seeing all these different things and these shifts in media and shift here and shift there and kind of what's happening with Elon at, at uh, buying Twitter and, and Tucker and Joe Rogan and, and ev- everything is shifting and moving. And you've, you've done really well in the places of shifting and moving and really being the person who causes things to shift and move with bringing someone like Laura in. in. But w- one of the things you're known for in the industry that I know that you're known for is native advertising and doing live reads and things like this. Mm-hmm. And 
Um, talk about kind of your success there and your theories behind it. Um, you know, what you were able to do at Laura's show with it um, and why that was of interest to Salem and, and some of the success you had there. Well, you know, Laura and I were doing a show every day and we had advertising breaks and the advertising breaks were where you sell pillows and the like, and you can attach your name to that, but you better use the product because yeah. then the passion comes across. Yeah. And so I worked hard on making sure that whatever products Laura used from a sleep number bed to a pillow were, yeah. I would chase down that CEO and say, look, Laura will do the live reads and I promise you it'll be good business. We'll give you a good return on your investment. And boy, did we appreciate when people advertised with us. Yeah. They were risking their hard fought capital yeah. and giving us money. We wanted to make sure there was a return on investment. Yeah. But there was this other space I just kept thinking about because I was a fan of the American theater and I love the American theater. All right, right up until about the 1980s, it was a serious theater, even if it leaned left. Because in the end, I really kind of sort of want my writers to challenge like wealth and challenge status. And I can deal with their, their, their quasi-liberalism as long as it has real human beings in it. And Arthur Miller is one of my favorite playwrights It's because the father-son relationships in, in Death of a Salesman and All My Sons are so palpable to anybody who's had a father, but yeah. particularly anybody who's had a father who sort of is rough around the edges, doing his best but coming up short. Yeah. And, uh, and that's, a lot of, that's a lot of people. And uh, there would always be these Marxist scenes, but that's not why anyone came for Arthur Miller's plays. Yeah. And always there was a scene in a kitchen. And in fact... Pretty soon, the plays were only in kitchens, and they got the name Kitchen Sink Realism. And I'm going, why is that? And then I found out General Electric Theater, General Electric was underwriting a program called General Electric Theater. And if you had a play which took place in a kitchen, well, they would put it up on NBC once a week, and then the rest of the country could see Death of a Salesman. And guess what would happen to that New York play? That New York play would become a touring play. And it's in the touring of the play where the money is made. So what I saw there was something called product placement. Yeah. You didn't notice it. No one noticed it. By the way, a lot of American life happens in kitchens. Yeah. This is where serious conversations happen. They don't happen in the living room. Yeah. They happen in the kitchen. Yeah. Every time I got a whooping from coming home late, I got whooped in the kitchen. Because my dad's sitting <laughs> under a light waiting for me to come in. Right? And so th this was proof, by the way, in my mind, that all those liberal playwrights were capitalists. Because yeah. they wanted GE to take their 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 yeah. show their their play so they could make more money having the play tour. Yeah. And so that was it for me. It's like, how could we replicate that on the air? Who would our partners be? And they, they became obvious to us. And they were institutions that we talk about anyway. So we actually yeah. brought them into the four squares of our show, let the audience know that they were sponsors, and wasn't an advertisement though. These yeah. were people we loved. And it ran the gamut of all the organizations you probably know and love. And it started with the Heritage Foundation. I mean, we broadcast from the Heritage Foundation. Yeah. And we got a nice rent deal and even some parking spaces in downtown D.C. And in return, in exchange for that, we were going to highlight many of the policies at Heritage that they were promoting and promulgating at the time. And uh, it was our own sort of in-house think tank and research tank, too. And we got compensated through free rent. And, yeah. and I'm Lebanese too, Brian. And, and the, the 11th commandment of, 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 is in, in, Le, in Lebanese families yeah. is we have an 11th and 12th commandment. The 11th commandment is never buy retail. And the 12th commandment is own your own business. Yeah. Right? So we get those first 10. They're really important. But then we got our other two. Yeah. And uh, that's why Lebanese do well in this country. We sort of followed the, the pattern of Jews. And yeah. Indian Americans, by the way, have followed the same pattern yeah. of, 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 of save your money. 
Like don't buy new stuff yeah. and then own. Yeah. Whatever you do, own and own your life. And uh, so, so that, that's, that, that was a, 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 a real, uh, uh, sort of a, a real new thing that anyone had ever seen or heard in talk radio before. It's called embedded uh, sponsorships. Yeah. And then it's the actual content. It's the four square of the show. And uh, that means the, the host is betting on that group to, and is wedding that group in their content. And yeah. I said, why not? We love them. Let's admit it. Yeah. And let's go and, and, and fight the battles, fight the battles they're fighting. And that's what we did. That's what we did at the Laura Ingram show all the time. And that's what Laura wanted to do. Look, that wasn't my show. That was her show. And so some of those partnerships were partnerships she wanted. And, and I just said, yes, boss. Um, and that's the joy of being a, a host. Uh, with Our American Stories, I wanted to get away from the partisan nature of life. I wanted to get to places where anybody would want to advertise with the show. That a car dealer wouldn't have to worry about alienating half the country by advertising with our show. Because I kept hearing that from good sponsors. Gee, I don't know what to do. I mean, if I advertise with Hannity, I tick off the liberals. If I advertise with Rachel Maddow, I tick out the conservatives. And all I want to do is sell cars. I wish there was a show that honored my values but didn't split people on po politics. Yeah. So I was also trying to solve that problem and also the problem of how do we learn to get along while in conflict? Yeah. Like my dad taught me with his own wife. Yeah. How do we get along while in conflict? Yeah. Where do we find common ground? And I am, I am always seeking common ground, even if it's taking someone I don't agree with politically to a concert yeah. because we love the artist. And mm. then we talk about the artists for the night and maybe our kids. Yeah. And then we get back into the fight the next day like athletes do when they get on the court. I miss the Tip O'Neill, Ronald Reagan days. We all do. Uh, but the fight's also a bigger fight now. There, yes. there, there's more at stake. Yeah. So sometimes when there's more at stake, there's a price to pay. We'll get into that because this is something that's been happening throughout our nation's history. Yep, 100%. Man, um, one of the... Um the other things, uh, there's like I said, I've got a million things rattling around in my head on directions I want to possibly go. Why do you write for Newsweek instead of writing for National Review, which you've written for National Review? But why why is that the publication you chose uh, to give your writing talents to every week? You know, they approached me. Um, they had new ownership, and uh, I had a sense of who had bought it, but I didn't know for sure because somebody bought it. And they had two folks who were conservatives and two part two folks who were sort of I would call them moderate left Joe Manchin types, Bill yeah. Clinton types. And I know that can make people crawl, but I'm not talking about the Bill Clinton personal. And by the way, I, you know, I'm, as a Christian, I, I'm just, I don't sit around really thinking about other people's sins that often, but how he governed, yeah. uh, he governed from the center, right? I mean, if you look at most of the things he Him did, and Newt brought a better America than, you know, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you could go into that. But. Yeah. And so, and so, you know, the, but what was the original point here, Brian? Because I, I, I took a little diversion. There. No, no, no. So, so I, I've heard you talk about the the desire. Oh, Newsweek. Newsweek. Yeah, the desire yeah. to write for Newsweek rather than another conservative publication talking about conservative yeah. talking points is is. Yeah, it's it's really simple. I get to talk to people who don't necessarily agree with me. Yeah, and it disciplines me to speak in a certain way. Look, as a Christian, I'm always asking myself, how do I reach somebody who doesn't know the Lord? Right, because I got—I didn't know the Lord till well, very late in life, and the people who reached me were living examples 
of, of godliness. I, I could see God in their work, in their, in their day-to-day life. John Quarles, one of the people who led yep. me to Christ. He, he knows that now because you yep. told him, and I should have told him a long time ago. But I kept meeting people who, but for God, but for Jesus, what their work accomplished could not have been explained otherwise. Yep. And uh, so the, the testimony is a very powerful thing. A person's story is a very powerful thing. And I've always asked myself, so now that I am a Christian, how do I touch another person? And what if they don't like Christ or they don't know him? And I've just learned to say, hey, are you okay if I see somebody looking sad? And then I'll say fairly soon thereafter, hey, do you mind if I pray on that? Yeah. I almost never hear no. Yeah. And that's a remarkable little relationship you just struck up. And I do believe this deeply. The more people we can bring closer to God, the more we're going to bring people to a place in their lives where they're going to see their politics shift. And I don't mean that that means they have to vote Republican because there are good, godly people who vote Democrat, right? But there are certain strains in this country that have, have such an alienation to God, such a harsh opposition to God, that, hey, I'm wondering, well, if you don't believe in them, why do you oppose them so much? I mean, I don't believe in unicorns. I don't oppose them. Yeah. I, I just don't even bother. If I think someone's delusional about a belief, I'm not going to change their mind. So if, think, if they think we're delusional about loving Jesus, why are they not just doing what I would do with people who believe in unicorns? So there's something going on with some part of the population that I think is reachable, right? And I want to reach everybody. And and, and so I've laid back lower on politics because I do believe if the church continues to shrink in its size, and and, then we're Europe. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Dennis Prager had a line in 2009 that I'll never forget. He said, the bigger the state, the smaller the citizen. And I, I called him up after. I said, you know, the bigger the state, the smaller the church, too. Yeah. And so that's the thing I was interested in. When a state gets so big that it crowds out the ability to tithe, when the taxes get so high that there's no money left for the church, um, then... This is, this is where real conflict can arise. Mm. And when power starts to get taken from the people in such ways that the people feel like somebody's ruling and running their life, but they don't know who. Yeah. Somebody's making decisions for them, and they don't know why. I've asked my friends in DEI at Old Miss, and I have any number of friends there, who decided that DEI should start? Were we invited? Yeah. What does the word diversity mean to you? Yeah. What is the word inclusion? I don't think they're bad words if they mean what they say. Define right? your terms. Define yeah. your terms. What is this word equity? When did equality become equity? Yeah. And why were we left out of this conversation? Yeah. Right? And so if I come at them that way and I start a dialogue with them, I get to know them. They get to know me. Now, they may ignore me, and that's when there has to be a fight, right? And Because if, if people don't want to listen and they don't want to hear your claims, then ultimately there has to be a battle. Yep. to resolve those claims. And I think that's what's in large measure happening. I had a friend of mine who's in the car business. And he said, one day I see the head of the EPA get up and he makes an announcement. There will be this amount of electric vehicles by this date. Now, he's the head of the EPA. But as this man said, he said, who made this guy the king of cars? Yeah. Isn't this for us to decide when we and how we drive EVs? He then told me, Lee, we won't believe this. The average car that Americans own right now on the road is 14 years old. 
because they can't afford these new cars. Mm -hmm. The average new used car, by the way, my family always had new used cars. Yeah. We didn't buy new cars. We didn't have the money. And but our, our don't family- Don't buy retail. Don't buy retail. Well, I'm <laughs> Lebanese too. It used to be three years. The average new used car is now six years old. Yeah. People are financing it over six years. Yeah. And those gas-powered cars are driven up in cost because these, these car companies have to make these electric vehicles and they're losing so much money on them then they're making the people buying the gas-powered cars pay more. Yep. The government shouldn't force this. I've been in Teslas. It's an amazing vehicle. If you want to buy a Tesla, buy one. I shouldn't have to give you $7,500. Some guy making $200,000 or more a year, $7,500 to make his Tesla cost less. So I'm, there's no fight here about electric vehicles or even, you know, what to do about climate. And even if you don't think there's climate change, how do you make for a better environment? Look, we're the original environmentalists. Uh, yeah. We're for a good environment. The question is who decides yeah. and who pays? And these are things where Americans are just routinely saying to themselves, how did this happen? I didn't, no one ran on this. I didn't get to vote on this. And yet here it is, student loan forgiveness. Who decided that? Who decided that? And how they come in, and this really gets into the eighteen nineteen world here, is you know you got a, you you've got a state that's ran by the power company, <laughs> and we wonder all of a sudden no electric car push. You know what I mean? And the governor who will never step sit in a, an electric car ever is going around the state telling us all that we need to get electric cars. Yeah, crazy. So well, and by the way, I would add to this, Brian. There's there's something like three hundred million cars on the road in America. There's uh, approximately 13 million new cars sold every year. There's 40 million used cars. So I don't know the speed with which folks think this is going to go the way they want it to go because the average American is, hold, like my family did, holding on for dear life that they get another 50,000 miles out of the car they finally paid off without the tranny falling down, yeah. right? And this is real life, and this is de Democrats and Republicans. And if the Democrat Party doesn't get this right, and they stop being the party of the working class, which includes Hispanics, African-Americans, and all kinds of people. And the Republican Party separates itself from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and the big businesses. Then we become the true party of the working class. And that's amazing. If you had ever told any Republican, old school, that we'd become the party of the working class, and the Democrat Party would be the party of the elites and cities and then highly educated folks, I would have said, what are you smoking? But now it's a reality. I've been saying, so it's crazy you said that because you and I have never had that conversation, but for the last, I don't know, probably nine months, I've been walking my audience and they're going to be like, oh, here he goes again. But, um, you know, historically, 30 years ago, my dad grew up in West Monroe, Louisiana, right? He's, he's, he's redneck and he was, he, he grew up a Democrat. He was a Democrat. He were, if you worked for a paycheck, you were a Democrat. If your dad worked in the C-suite at one of these big corporations, you were a Republican. It's just the way that it was, as you alluded to earlier, um, you know, there, there was a reason for unions and it was because the big business people really did prey on on working class populists. Right. And and there was a reason for unions. There was a reason for trial lawyers because they were really protecting those people from these big businesses that were really preying on them. Well, then at those those trial lawyers and those unions became to kind of turn into their own entities. And they got so big and so bloated and so out of control that there were powerhouses in their own right. As that was happening, the Democrat Party platform moved left, 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 left over here into like gen gender mutilation and stuff we're dealing with now. Or um, and 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 the populists were left without any like without a party. And so what happened, at least in the South, is the populist moved into the Republican Party. And so within the Republican Party, you still had the big business, 
the Chamber of Commerce people and the populace. And now there's this there's this split, and then you just have the Democrat Party that's basically turned into nothing. And it's just a bunch of crazy people. And then within the Republican Party, you have the business class and you have the populist class. And what the business class does is they know that they need the populist vote the same way that Democrat elites know that they need the black vote. So they pander to the blacks. Right. And so conservative Christian populists are to the Republican Party what blacks are to the Democrat Party. We're the only thing keeping it going. And so they'll give a candidate $50,000 so that they can go make commercials with a gun over their shoulder talking about how much they love Jesus and the Constitution. So the populist votes for them. And then they go do the bidding of the big corporations. So anyway, but what you're seeing, but now you see big business with DEI and ESG. Now big business is starting to turn woke. And 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 so is now is big business going to go over to the Democrat Party and then the populists take over the Republican? It's like it's it's interesting because I've never I've times. never had that conversation with you and you said the same thing. So I thought, look, that you know, I, 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 you know, I, I, I'm a student of history. My dad is, you know, there was a day where every the Catholic vote was 90 percent Democrat. Yeah, it's not anymore. Uh, and 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 things change and 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 I I would I would sort of try to disabuse all of us of this word populist because I don't know what that means and it has many negative connotations many positive ones but it doesn't I don't think really define what's going on it's just the working class versus the ruling class yeah. and the poor so the ruling class and the poor are now become in essence and the city folks have become the heart and soul of the Democrat Party, the rural part of the country, the working class part of the country, and now this burgeoning and growing Latino vote because they're Catholics and evangelicals are starting to form the basis of a new Republican Party with a new coalition. Yeah. And I just see them as coalitions. And people coalesce yeah. around certain parties. And it's been changing continually since the beginning. And first, you know, one of the stories we did, and one of my favorites, James Madison and George Hamilton, essentially, with, with Governor Morris, write the Constitution. I mean, they're debating the Constitution, but then the crafting and drafting of it is these guys. And those two guys, and, 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 and John Jay, you know, these are the people who wrote the Federalist Papers. But once the Constitution forms, suddenly, James Madison and George Hamilton become, and, and Alexander Hamilton become bitter enemies. Alexander Hamilton wants more power to go to the to the big central bank. He wants the cities to take power. He sees industrialization long before it comes. He sees it coming. George James Madison is from like like Albemarle County, Virginia. And he said, "No, we rural people see it different. These guys are become bitter enemies. They fight." They, they slander each other in papers. You know, the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists going at it like cats and dogs. And the Federalists win in the beginning. But by the third presidency, the Anti-Federalists have taken over. And that battle between, in the end, I really believe it's this simple. It's rural America and it's city America with the exurbs up for grabs. Yeah. And then these groups of people, large ones, the, the people who have master's degrees and college degrees and the people in the trades. Now, there are plenty of people in the trades who vote Democrat, right? Yeah. And there are plenty of people, I have a fancy degree, but I vote Republican. I'm talking about the mass yeah. groups. This is what's interesting to me is how these groups merge, coalesce, split apart. No alliances are permanent. They're yeah. temporary, and it's a fight to figure out what's happening right now in the world. And by the way, it's with AI, it's only going to head more towards this space where people who have the right skill sets are going to be riding that wave. And they're going to have more in common with people from Italy and Asia than they will with people downstate in Illinois. Mm. Because it's a skill level, and it's a lifestyle level, and they're seeing the world through a, a one prism. While the working class is seeing 
it through another. And so when Donald Trump starts talking about China, it wasn't about whether people liked him or didn't like him. When he started to talk about illegal immigration, I watched people roar and run to him. And that had to be described better by our own party and understood, the Republican Party, that is. And Democrats didn't understand it either. But I think the Republican Party didn't quite even understand what was going on. They thought it was, oh, he did a, The Apprentice, that's why. No, he was tapping and touching things because he was coming from outside the system. He was listening and hearing and seeing things that only an outsider, and this is not an endorsement of Trump or not. I, I, I don't do politics, and I'm, I don't yeah. do a political show, but I, I have eyes, yeah. and I have ears. And all these people I knew who were voting for Trump, when I would ask them why, he said he's going to fight for me. He cares about me. Coal miner friends of mine. I went to UVA. A lot of my friends' families came from coal mines. This one, one guy who worked in the mine said, you know, I don't understand these people. Brazil's going to sell coal to China, and we're not. Yeah. The, the environment's going to suffer either way because China's building new coal plants like crazy. They, they, they bought out of the Paris Accords till 2030, and they may buy out for longer. They're going to keep building coal plants. By the way, that doesn't mean we should have them or not. I'm perfectly happy if natural gas puts coal out of business. That's called competition. But to simply punish coal miners and tell them that you're going to no longer allow them to mine coal on the, on the altar of climate change when Brazil will quickly, quickly sell that same coal to China? So Trump was listening to the, and by the way, that's a Democrat union vote forever, coal miners. If you were to ask coal miners in 1980, would they ever vote Republican? They would like laugh and tell you to start drinking more. Yeah. You're so out of touch, yeah. right? And But look what happens, right? Now, you know who really understood this? Michael Moore predicted that Trump would win. He understood it because he knew the union guys and he was going into union halls and he wasn't seeing Hillary Clinton posters up because union guys weren't connecting with her. They didn't understand who she was fighting for, and they knew it wasn't them. Yeah. So this is what's interesting. You know, you have to go earn the vote. If you're running a restaurant, you've got to go earn the customer. Yeah. In this world, I don't call it populist. So, so is Barack Obama populist because he got more votes? No, he's popular. Yeah. I'd rather use the word popular than yeah. populist because the, 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 the folks who don't like this grassroots movement on the right throw out the word populism. But when grassroots movements happen on the left, they're movements from the people, yeah. and it's good. But when it's movements from the people Those on the deplorables. right, it's the deplorables. <laughs> and so we, we have to be careful with their language yeah. and just say, and by the way, it's easy to forget how to get votes and how to make sure that we have an attractive party to attract those votes. And if we start concentrating on only our obsessions and not what the people care about, we can lose their vote in a minute, like any restaurant can. My, my friend's a restaurateur his whole life, and he said, I'm two meals away from losing a customer for life. They'll give me a break on that first bad meal. But if the cake, they come back two weeks later and they get another bad meal and no service, the loyalty is lost. And by the way, they have a right to that. Because right. you have to go earn that customer every day, yeah. and you have to be a good husband every day. You can't go neglecting your wife for months and years at a time. There's yeah. going to be a price to pay for that. So I, I don't like getting too smug in politics, no matter what our views are. It's a fight, and we got to keep our ears open, and we got to really listen to folks. What are they yeah. looking for? What are their concerns? What are their top two or three issues? And let's go in and take care of them. If I, if I was a politician, that's how I'd be thinking. I'd be going out and listening a lot yeah. and asking people, what are you, you, know, what are you worried about? Yeah. How can I help you?
Yeah. And I think then when you're running, you can say, hey, I've heard from you. I've heard from you. I'm not here for me. I'm here for you. And if you can get more votes than the other guy, you're the, quote, populist well, and, or and the popular guy. Trump is the only businessman, too. And he, he, he understood you, you serve your base as your customer. Yep. If you go in and do something for these people, you'll have their... You know, affection. Their, their affection and their yes, business. That's right. And and he was the first person to do something for this group of people, you know, in a, in a really yeah, long who had time. Yeah, who had felt left behind for a long time. I can't tell you how many places where I, I, I travel the country a lot, and I, places that were Democrat strongholds, that, yeah. that, that, that Ohio's now a solid red state. You could have never told me. But that Arizona is now, and that Colorado's a solid blue state, yeah. means that we took for granted Colorado. We took for granted Colorado. That's not... The, and as Republicans, that that's not the Democrats' fault, right? Yeah. Or if we say, "Oh, the schools were, were were taken over by by progressives," no, we we surrendered it. We didn't fight for the ground of equality so that there be as many conservatives teaching as there are liberals, which I think all we would want as many Christians as atheists we'd want. Like I'm almost sounding like a liberal here. I'd want the faculty to look and sound and feel like the town. Yeah. Right. And then the kids could hear all different points of view and make up their own mind. That's all we should want. What a crazy thought. My dad, by the way, I never knew how he voted. He wouldn't tell me because he didn't want to taint my ability to think for myself and come up with my own conclusions. So that's a that's a hard thing yeah. as a parent to 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 vote this way, vote yeah. that way. Well, By the way, you watch some of the kids are going to go don't agree once yeah. they're older, right? Hundred percent. And I mean, I personally one I'm running a nonprofit. I'm not Republican Democrat either way. But the other side of it is, I, I really have no party loyalty. You know, is, to me, it's like who's who's going to do right? Who's going to? I look at it like a Robert F. Kennedy again, not endorsing him. But I look at him and it's like I would rather have him than you know maybe some neocon, right? Like mm-hmm. so, it's like. Look, anyway. I voted for Bill Clinton twice, and, yeah. and I tell my conservative friends that, and they look at me funny. I, I just liked him as a. I thought he was going to be a more effective leader. I like where he came from. I like the, the what what he believed. Yeah. I like that if we could have reform from the dem, within the Democrat Party, because he was fighting off the progressive wing of his own. Heck, in his own house, he yeah. was fighting off the progressive wing of the party, and yeah. I like that. That's good if we can get those yeah. voices that we can align ourselves with in the opposing party. That's harder and harder now. Democrats. Yeah have a bigger problem than we have. The progressives have really driven a wedge into the what I used to call the blue dog Democrats. Yeah. They're mortified. They're, gonna, they're, they're terrified of being primaried by radical leftists. And, yeah. and so the centrist Democrat, the center-left Democrat, the JFK Democrat, oh my goodness. You'll listen to a JFK speech. I played his July 4th yeah. speech He'd on our American story. He'd be a radical right-winger. He was for tax cuts. Yeah. He was for God. He was he was anti-communist all the way. Yeah. Um, and so parties change, sometimes yeah. for the better, sometimes for the worse. Yep. All right. I wanted to do this earlier, but we got uh, got on a good a good trail. Um, you came to Birmingham and spoke at the Rotary. I think you've spoken to the Rotary a couple times. One, it was digital during COVID. That was a whole thing. Um, but uh, the other time we brought you that friend, and um, one of the guys that stood up when you were done telling three or four stories he said, does anybody have any questions? And the guy stood up and he said, tell, t- tell me another story. <laughs> and so I think you have uh, an incredible gift to be able to just power, power punch storytelling in, in, you know, three or four minutes. And so what is, I mean, I know the, the Henry Ford story is one you do really well. I think the, the Ralph Lipschitz story is a really good one. Yep. Tell, us, tell us some of the stories that, that you talk about on Our American Stories. Well, you know, one of them I want to share is the one I alluded to earlier, and it's, uh, it's Ben Franklin and his son. 
Now, it was an illegitimate son. And back in the day, if you had an illegitimate son, you did not raise him. Especially someone with the status of Ben Franklin. He's very wealthy. He's very prominent. But he does the right thing. And he not only raises his boy, he's close to his boy. He travels with his boy. His boy's in London being educated like at an early age. And and then comes the day. What's going to happen uh, with the country as we head towards this moment of division with England? What's Benjamin Franklin going to do? Is he going to sign the declaration or not? It's a binary. It's a binary when you're a leader. You either you either side with the constitution, I mean the with the uh, declaration people or you side with the British government and the loyalists. Well, his son by that time was the royal governor of New Jersey. Ben Franklin signs the declaration. But before he does, he's warning his son, "Hey, look, son, there's nothing I can do to help you." If I sign this, because you see, there's going to be a death warrant on my head. The king will want me and the people who sign this dead. This is high treason. And it is. It was. Yeah. They were signing their death warrant. As Benjamin Rush said, there was the silence that pervaded the room. They were putting their sacred honor and treasure and blood and life on the line by signing this. Yeah. They are most wanted. These are the 56 most wanted men in America. And he said, we have to do this. And the son is saying the opposite. No, dad, I can't protect you. If you sign it, I'm staying with the crown. Well, Benjamin Franklin's team and posse rounded up William and threw him and other loyalists, prominent ones, into the Litchfield Gal, the worst prison in America, for two years. And when they expelled these people, they expelled them to London, and they never returned. And Ben Franklin and his son never spoke again. And these were the choices. A third of the people were for the revolution in America. A third were virulently against it. And a third were hiding under their table, hoping it would all work out. And inside those two thirds, there was probably about 5% of the hard, ardent loyalists and 5% of the hard, ardent patriots who were willing to fight and pay the price for this battle that had had to get resolved one way or the other. And I think we're at that juncture in America where there are really hard choices that we're fighting over. And it's essentially, as I said earlier, who decides? The remote power we were fighting then was Parliament and the King. Yeah. And it wasn't just Parliament. It was this King and this idea of succession. Like, these people should have nothing to do with self-governance. Yeah. It should be we the people. So instead of a king, we had a president with limited powers, right? Yeah. Limited powers. We didn't want to make him all powerful. And over the years, the presidency has accrued a lot more power and the executive branch. So now the remote power we're fighting in America is Washington, D.C. 100%. Or in Alabama, it's Montgomery, right? And so these are normal fights. We let go of too much power. We give it away, frankly. We just give it because we're thinking we don't want to be bothered or I don't want to create a mess or I'm too busy or I'm too scared. There's no really good reason. There's just bad reason and really bad reason. And then one day we wake up and go, hey, wait a second. I want to decide what happens in my school, right? I want to run for school board. I don't want to just show up at a school board meeting and be told to shut up and sit down. I want to be on the school board. And so what you're seeing is tens of thousands of Americans now running for school board races, for school board seats. Now, I don't care how they vote. I don't care about any of that. What my dad always wanted to see was a robust parent-power-driven school board, not institutionalized school boards that then get close and cozy with big interest groups that work curriculum through that school board and through that cozy relationship and through the big teachers' unions straight into the curriculum with anybody not even knowing it. Yeah. 
And then when you find out, it's too late. Yeah. It's everywhere. And so I think this is the interesting thing about these stories of the past. They happen in the present. This is what's beautiful about the Bible. I, my favorite instruction is, are you Cain or are you Abel? Which brother are you? It, 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 when, when, it, let's take the Good Samaritan. Which brother are you? Are you the brother who runs off and squanders dad's money? Yeah. And by the way, when dad takes that boy back, are you the brother who gives the dad a hard time for taking his son back? Yeah. Right? And that, that story, those stories have eternal uh, significance. They don't change. And the battles we're having about who decides who pays has been in this country forever, and it's reached some pretty big fever pitches. I mean, the yeah. Civil War was a slight disagreement between and among yeah. the states, right? We've never been more divided. Never been more divided. So when I hear that stuff, and, and by the way, this is a warning to the audience on all sides, whatever political spectrum you are, when people say pipe down, just get along, um, they're telling you to, to get along with them. Yeah. They're telling you not to disagree. You know, there was a day when if you were a Marxist or too far to the left, we had something called the McCarthy hearings. It was a sad day for America, right? People having to, you know, we were the original cancel culture, cancel culture in yeah. this respect, right? And heck, we canceled Bill Maher. Laura and I were really mad that Bill Maher got canceled in 2001. I think it's what turned him into an anti-Republican. All he said on that evening, Dinesh D'Souza had said he was a guest. He said, you know, you got to give it to those radical Muslims. They'll die for their cause. And all Bill Maher said to add to that is, yeah, and we point scud missiles at stuff because they really have the courage. He was not commenting on our soldiers. Yeah. He was commenting on, on life. Well, what do you know? All the big talk radio hosts got Bill Maher canceled. They can we canceled the Dixie Chicks, right? So we, 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 they, they had a comment about the war, and we canceled them. Right? <laughs> and now we're coming around to realize both Bill Maher and the Dixie Chicks were absolutely right. Yes, and they were right about the war, right? <laughs> and so here's the thing about canceling people. We, we, we should love our enemies, right? Because we're yeah. Christian, right? And we should disagree with them and not want to kill them. We just want to win the battle of ideas, but we have to love our neighbors. Yeah. And the more we can truly love our neighbors— as we're commanded to if you're a Christian listening. But even if you're just a decent human being, love your neighbor even though you disagree with them. Yeah. And, and, and I think this, whatever party does that better, and that, and that is the people who represent that party, are going to have more people coming. And whichever church does that better. You know, if you have some people you disagree with theologically, or you have some atheist who's doing something, or somebody who's doing something sexually you don't like. By the way, adultery would be something sexually that we don't like, yeah. right? And we should be vehemently talking about that. But we don't throw them out of our churches because of that sin. We love them. We don't, we, don't, we don't love the sin, but we love the sinner. And if we showed more love like that, radical love, to all the people around us, without lowering our flag, without changing God's word, but loving everybody. Um, I don't know what our enemies do when hit with relentless love. Yeah. And so that's, the, for, for my money, as I've got, I got into the storytelling part, it was just, I didn't care how, how anybody voted. I don't ask anybody who comes on the show how they voted. Yeah. I don't ask them about their sexuality. If they want to talk, and when I ask them what's important in their lives, and they start to talk about who they love, they love who they love. I have no more to add or subtract. That's it. And I'm not yeah. endorsing anything and I'm not not endorsing anything because it's not my prerogative as yeah. a Christian to endorse or, or punish someone's sin. It's to love them. Yeah. That's between them and their God, if they have one, to, to get in line with God. My job is to love my neighbor. That's yeah. it. Not to condone it. Not If they ask me a, a question about if, if they love adultery, for instance, I'm not going to condone their adultery but I'm still going to be there because something's going on in that person's life 
who's committing the adultery. Yeah. What's going on that he's risking his life? I've had a f- several friends like this who've continued. They, this was one of their problems. Others, drinking was their problem and drugs. But my job then was to love them more, yeah. right? And especially at that time when they find themselves in a prison or they find themselves fired from a job and everybody's fleeing. Yeah. And there you are right next to them, not lowering your flag, but praying with them. Amen. Right. And yeah. I think if we had that kind of radical love, Brian, tied to our, our politics being, we want to just have a say in how our money gets spent and we, we have every right to, um, and we we're not asking for permission, but we're not going to kick you out. Right. Uh, we, we, we are not here to cancel you, but you're here to listen to and respect us yeah. and to create room for us and space for us, particularly in public education. We want to see more conservative and Christian teachers at Ole Miss. Yeah. I live in Oxford, Mississippi. So I don't, but I don't want to fire the Marxist professor. I just want to make sure for every Marxist professor, there's a conservative, free market conservative, and then let the kids decide. Yeah. That's for my money. That should be every conservative's goal is not to be like the liberals and purge the ranks because yeah. they do that. When we become like them, um, then we've lost not only the high ground in this way, canceling people or kicking them out of the public square, uh, we become something worse because we become hypocrites because we actually are, I think, still a group of people running on principles. Yeah. And when you run on principles, I think that's better than running on party. Yeah, no, I agree. I think one of the things, and we'll have to wrap up here, that there, there, and there, there's always a line somewhere, though, and and I think one of the things that's happening societally, as far as like Christians and loving people who are in sin and all that, I absolutely agree with everything you said. But then we have this other thing we're dealing with, who are people who are trying to sodomize our children, right? Which is like a, a next level, you know, grooming our children, having sex with our children, getting our children to pick up dollar bills underneath guys that are dressed up as chicks with their junk hanging out, right? And that that makes it in that in, in a whole interesting space, and it's like. You know, it, it makes it challenging, but but I would add this, Brian. It's how we talk about that. Remember, I was yeah. talking about my dad and what was called the park bench rule. Yeah, because you know, back in the day, what people were worried about was teaching like heterosexual sex to kids yeah. before the age of sixth grade. Those yeah. teachers who wanted to bring a banana and a condom into yeah. the classroom. Yeah, it wasn't about the type of sex. It was that there's an age at which you should not be talking about sex at all. Yeah. And so, what my dad said is use the park bench standard. Teachers, here's what it sounds like: if you were to just sit on a park bench next to a six year old. And start to talk, and the six-year-old asks you, hey, how do two girls who love each other or a man and a woman who love each other have sex? If a six-year-old asks a grown adult that in a park on a bench, the adult has to say, you need to talk to your parents about that. Because yeah. the minute you start talking to them about sex, you're going to get arrested. Yeah. And so the, idea, the, the problem that we've had in messaging this is that we have to say, we don't want anybody talking about sex to our kids, period. About it. Any yeah, kind of sex. 100%. Heterosexual sex, gay sex, you name the kind of sex. Leave our kids alone. The answer should always be, let you should talk to your parents. That's yeah. it. And then we're not, we, watch how many more people we bring in from the gay community. Watch how many people we bring in who are supposedly our, op- our opponents if we make the issue bigger, not smaller. Yeah. And too often we focus on just the types of groups we don't want people to talk to our kids. Yeah. What we really don't like is anybody talking to our kids about sex. Period. That's our job. We, yeah. we have that, that mindset. I don't want the teachers indoctrinating our kids on religion. I wouldn't like it if teachers were suddenly talking about Jesus every second in a the classroom. Yeah. These are public schools. Right? So don't proselytize. Teach yeah. math, 
Teach reading, teach writing. Yeah. That's your job. I don't want conservatives proselytizing in the schools. I don't want liberals proselytizing in our schools. Leave the kids alone. Yeah. Right? So we call it in Alabama the three R's. Reading, writing, arithmetic. And arithmetic. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you. All right, guys. Well, that'll wrap it up. Um, Lee, thank you so much for joining us. Where can people find Our American Stories? OurAmericanStories.com. And we're available on iHeart uh, Podcasts. They have an app. And uh, Apple, anywhere you get your podcast. Our American Stories. Yep. Easy to find. There you go. All right, guys. That'll wrap it up for this week. Uh, until next time, put your trust in God and keep your powder dry. <laughs>